Welcome to season four of the Coffee and Geography podcast. The aim of the show is to get to know, explore, and celebrate the diverse and intersectional range of people and their love for the world. Join your host, Kit Marie Rackley, and have fun exploring all the myriad of ways guests can connect their lives to geography. Today, let's listen to how subjectivity can be put to creative use, exploring perceptions through art in a post-conflict context, examples of counter maps, imaginary towns, and other things. Got your brew ready? Great. Enjoy the lesson. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to Coffee and Geography. So we're on the way with season four, and um, no spoilers yet, but um, if you haven't listened to the last episode, the first episode of the season, do that. I'm not, my guest here is amazing, but do that first. There is a reason why. <laughs> so I am going to introduce to you, everybody, is it James Riding or James Ridding? Because I want to get that right. It's James Riding. Glad riding a bike. James Riding a bike. Right. So how are you doing, James? Good morning to you. <laughs> I'm good, thank you. Yeah, really good. How are you? Yeah, it's it's uh, it's a lovely. It's one of those lovely winters day here. Um, so the sun is out. So we've got high pressure system, but bitterly cold. But it's one of those ones you don't mind going for a walk in, if you got the right shoes on. No, I walked to work this morning. Uh, I live in the west end of Newcastle and uh, walked to the office today. So yeah, it was quite a nice morning. Nice. Yeah, because as uh, your intro says, so uh, James uh, Riding is New uh, is Newcastle University Academic Track Fellow. You'll have to explain that one to us in a minute. <laughs> um, a cultural geographer who uses creative methods. He mainly works in Bosnia and Herzegovina and has been making a new atlas of the country with a local peace building organisation. And folks, you bet we're going to be talking about that. What is an academic track fellow, James? That's the first time I've come across that title. Yeah, I mean, there's other schemes as well at other universities. Uh, some universities call it like a chancellor's fellow or something like that. It's basically an internally funded fellowship that universities oh. do. So once you once you kind of have got past PhD and you want a postdoc, uh, it's just a postdoc really, but it allows you to then get a permanent post, hopefully, at the end of the five years. Oh. Uh, so luckily last, last year I had an interview and was finally made permanent after years on uh, precarious contracts. <laughs> yeah, Congratulations. So, uh, so from, uh, from next September, I'll be senior lecturer at Newcastle. So that's great. Oh, congratulations. So there you go Taking first. me uh, but... 11 years, 11 years post-PhD. Wow. Well, you know, yep. So folks, your career is never over. <laughs> no, keep going. Well, you're a young lad though. I mean, we must be roughly the same <laughs> <Hello>. age. <laughs> So you must have gone straight into academia or kept carried on in, into academia, I guess. Have you ever? Yeah, I mean, I, I've completed my PhD when I was 25, but I did have a year where I worked in my uh, late father's uh, plumbing shop where I sold people kind of bathrooms for kind oh. of eight months before I then got a postdoc at Sheffield. All oh, right. And so I did do a little bit of kind of uh, work that was sort of related because I then became quite interested in all the stuff that's behind walls. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and the kind of geography of things that we can't see. 
Oh, yeah, well, which is which will lead quite nicely when we talk about your work. Yeah, I mean, oh, well, it's a shame you're all the way up there in Newcastle then because my shower pump needs replacing. So, you know, I could have asked you <laughs> yeah. to come down and yeah, then we I've could got, have done I've this in person. <laughs> yeah, it's a bit of a trek down <laughs> the, between Newcastle and Norwich. Um, right, so uh, as is custom with this podcast, we uh, we talk about what you've got uh, in front of you to drink while we're having a little chin wag. So uh, we, this is a virtual coffee house. So I've got my uh, cup of tea with oat milk. What have you got, James? I've got a black Americano. Ooh. Yeah. yeah very uh, bitter. Uh, not like me, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Uh, yeah. Do you, do, is there any particular brand you're loyal to? I mean, we don't we don't promote brands. We just what we do on this podcast, just for a reminder of people coming new to coffee and geography. And you've missed the other three seasons. Uh, we like to mention a brand because I like to put them on the map and get listeners to uh, challenge their sustainability credentials. So it's no reflection on the guest at all. It's just an opportunity for listeners to go and say, right, well, let's see if they're a sustainable. Because if they are, they might get some more business. So is there any brand you're loyal to? Uh, Pink Lane Coffee Pink is Lane. brilliant uh, in Newcastle. Yeah, yeah, oh. it's near the station. Um, so some days, I didn't actually get it from there today. I got it from the campus shop today. But uh, if you want kind of really nice coffee in Newcastle, go to Pink Lane. Oh, there you yeah. go. That is but a bit today I got it from um, in the building. There's a little cafe at the bottom of the building. And I say hello uh, every day. And it's nice because you have that moment of uh, kind of, just a nice morning hello to somebody mm. that you recognize every single day, even though it's kind of a quick exchange. I think yeah. it's really good for your mental health to have those kind of regular uh, meetings with people, just I, even just getting a coffee. I totally, yeah, I totally, totally agree. So there's, there's a place in, um, so that one of the buildings at the University of St. Angeles, the Enterprise Center, um, I've got to do a podcast recording from there because it's apparently well, when it was built, it was the most sustainable building in the whole of Europe, and it might still be, if not one of them. Um, and I used to work in that particular building, and I, going to the little cafe in the foyer there was absolutely lovely. It was so gorgeous, and the staff are lovely. But now I don't work in that building anymore, and I'm, I'm not on campus as often. But when I do go onto campus, and we've got meetings up that side of campus, I always make my way down into the Enterprise Centre to the cafe there. And they're like, oh! Oh, hi kids lovely to see you again how's things going and yeah you have that little chat and you know are you still having your chai lattes you know but we don't have any spice today it's got to be vanilla is that all right darling it's like oh this is so lovely but you're right it does give you that bit of uh, a bounce in your step doesn't it with those like kind of chats yeah i mean it's really brilliant that, that um we've still got a cafe in the building mm. uh, because obviously a lot of things do get cut like that i mean yeah lot of buildings previously i mean i remember being a student at manchester in the early 2000s and we had uh, a map library and things like that we had a map library we had our own geography library all in the building and they obviously all got caught and centralized so so yeah actually having all those little things within one building that really does help build community it does yeah oh that's just given me a really strong memory now of when i was uh, i mean we must have been at university roughly at the same time so i was at uea in the early 2000s as well and they had in the basement of the climatic research unit they have a they had a very extensive meteorological map library it was absolutely incredible and i used it for my dissertation actually a lot because i was putting out maps of you know of to track storm tracks and things like that so in particular i was looking at the 1953 storm and i remember seeing like original copies uh, or, or official copies of the synoptic charts of the 1953 storm. And it was just like, it was mind blowing. And there's nothing like 
getting these giant maps is there you know at the minimum a3 you know but and but bigger usually and just laying them on that middle table and just oh there's nothing quite like it i mean i'm a big big fan of gis and digital mapping but there's nothing quite like a physical map no those those drawers that they come in like i'd love i'd love yes. a pair of those like set of those at home yeah just to pull those yeah. out every day yeah. and they can't give them away now like the the maps like Every department I've been in have said, we're closing the map library. Uh, there's all these maps. The library don't want them anymore. Does anybody want them? Yeah. And so I have got a, a couple of old ones that I picked up when I was a PhD student at Exeter as well. So I think every uh, department kind of got rid of the, all, the, all those old maps and, right. and we're just kind of giving them out to PhD students and staff uh, because the library didn't want to kind of hold them anymore. Right, yeah. Yeah, in my, in, when I was teaching geography, we had a map drawing our in our office and um they were full of old ordnance survey sheet maps so not not the folding maps that you take out hiking but the sheet maps but they were date they were like 1970s 1980s maps but so what i used to do with them i mean people say oh it's a shame they're going away so what we actually do is that now it's i mean i mean i you're probably you know talking to someone who will definitely agree with me here but i don't know if anyone else listening feels the same but to draw directly on a map, unless it's by design, like a like a, a, a nautical chart or something like that, is sacrilege, right? So, um, so what, what I used to do, I, it took me forever to think of this idea because of that taboo, right? But what I decided, so right, when I'm teaching the year sevens and the kids their map skills, why not get these old maps out? We can put the desks together in the classroom and we can have just loads them about and they can file around them and they can draw on them they can plan routes on them they can put use rulers and draw lines to figure out the grid references and stuff like that and it was like such an effective learning tool and then of course then you at the end you say you don't usually do this on 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 maps and and you kind of establish why you know because it's very hard to to decipher maps if they've got marks on them or something like that but um yeah that that was an amazing thing we did and the other thing i did with those maps we just had so many of them um um that i ended up using them for wrapping christmas wrapping paper <laughs> yeah i've seen that done yeah. yeah and actually um map art's like a huge thing like mm. you know there's an artist uh in newcastle that does some some mapping kind of artworks of uh places around newcastle like there's some of the more there's some of kind of time mouth um yeah so there's lots of kind of artistic mapping things that you can oh, do yeah. i can imagine like actually if you had all the old ones and nobody wanted them anymore just kind of cutting and pasting them all together oh, in this kind of weird collage way yeah somebody has got to done that folks is there anyone out there who you know or you've done something like that you know get in get in touch with us you know i i, I still can't say excess but you know tweet tweet us at, at coffee jog pod folks if you've got any stories about that Are you a business or organization passionate about ethical practices, products, and systems? Is being sustainable, inclusive, and equitable core to your values? And do you want to spread the word amongst listeners who share these ideals? Then sponsor the Coffee and Geography podcast. There are pricing options to suit a range of needs, and you know you are supporting independent educational efforts that aligns with your aims. Visit bit.ly coffee. Geog sponsor for more details.
Now, you just mentioned Newcastle and Tyneside and all that lot, uh, which is where you're based right now. So the question I always like to ask people, uh, James, is um, is kind of like how how where you are today, but also where you've been throughout your your life and, and your background, how has it kind of formed formed your identity? It's a very tricky question for people. Some people approach this in so many different ways. So... Um, so you can say where you're originally from and have you brought that with you or, uh, you know, are you born and bred certain somewhere and you feel like a sore thumb in Newcastle? But yeah, so talk to us a little bit about Newcastle for James Riding and if there's any other kind of part of the world that's in your soul. I mean, I know you said Bosnia Herzegovina. Is anything from there that's part of your identity now? And yeah, let us know. Um, well, I'm from Preston, which is kind of a cotton town in Lancashire. Um and I, I, I think it maybe did form some of my kind of politics and ways of seeing the world, um, certainly in a sense of um, re- more recently as well. Like there's, there's this thing called the Preston model, um, which the uh, local um, council have tried to kind of regenerate um, an area of the city that was um, for a long time kind of abandoned shops, uh, empty buildings, uh, but quite pretty um, and kind of beautiful street. Um, so, yeah, that sort of uh, legacy of, of living in a, a, a kind of post-industrial uh, town growing up probably did make me um, eager to, like, work out why why some places are perhaps left behind places. Mm. Like here, especially at Newcastle, we have a group called Kurtz, which is a centre for urban and regional development studies. Um, and they've been running for kind of 30 years now. Uh, it's a long established group and they um, do a lot of work on, on this sort of stuff around left behind places. Um, mm. And then being in Newcastle, I guess, I guess that it's, we do get local students from here as well. Um, I think that's really important. Um, and we try to be as inclusive as possible in our teaching. Uh, because for some students going to university is a doddle and they kind of enjoy yeah. being at university, but for other students they're really struggling at the moment, especially with like cost of living and uh, just simply not having the cultural capital that some of the students have to be mm. able to knock on your door and say, hey, can you help me with this? Uh, it will take them until they get to a point where they're really struggling before they come and speak to you. Right, Whereas yeah. some students are very uh, comfortable in kind of knocking on your door and asking questions about the latest essay. Um, so, yeah, I guess being in Newcastle fits quite well. I've always worked more or less at institutions that were uh, northern. So I went, did my undergraduate at Manchester, uh, did a postdoc at Sheffield, um, then did my PhD down south in uh, Exeter, and now I'm back up in Newcastle. And I also had three years in Tampere, in Finland, which wow. was also the kind of Tampere in Finland is also a kind of working class, uh, working city uh, in the middle of Finland, uh, known for um, making beautiful uh, fabrics. Um, so that kind of fitted as well with my kind of history of being from a cotton town. Wow. Um, and then obviously throughout this period for the last 10 years, I've been traveling to Bosnia and Herzegovina uh, quite extensively. Um, and that came about largely because my PhD was um, about uh, poets that died in the First World War and how they look to gain at the landscape differently after they after the outbreak of war. How could they 
um, continue writing about the landscape of England, southern England, and romanticizing this landscape while knowing the kind of death and uh, scale of destruction that was going on on the continent. Uh, and so this kind of way in which artists had to kind of process conflict and what mm-hmm. artists could say about conflict became a real interest. Um, and then around 10 years ago, I got a research grant to be able to work at the University of Sheffield um, to begin researching how artists, activists and academics in Bosnia and Herzegovina, but also ordinary citizens, have uh, come to terms with or lived through and continue to live through Mm. um, the extent of uh, ethnic cleansing, genocide, siege, um, and how that continues to have an effect today, not only in the trauma that people still experience, but also in the uh, political structure um, and the politics of uh, Bosnia and Herzegovina post the peace agreement that was signed in 1995. Yeah, wow. That is so so many threads we can pick up on there. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is, <clears throat> and I was actually speaking um, to a colleague about this the other day, about how, how important the arts are. Um, and you've just highlighted like at least two or three connections there between understanding processes and history and geography through arts and, and you know, the interpretation of things through art can make things a hell of a lot more accessible, understandable and tangible for people. Um, and the, the other thing, which is very close to my day job, of course, is is the transition into university. Um, and I've, met, I've talked about that before on a podcast. So, um, yeah, there's so many things we talk in the detail there. But let's, let's, let's take that as a natural segue to what you're doing then uh, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, because this is just fascinating. Of course, I'm so glad, James, that you're on today to talk about this because it is something when when conflict happens, as is quite clear today, you know, we've got you've got the war in Ukraine. We've got, uh, you know, the the conflict that's happening uh, in Israel and Gaza. And as soon as these fresh, devastating conflicts kick off, they get all the headlines and then the previous conflicts get forgotten about. I mean, there's been hardly any talk about, you know, the the the, the you know the brutal change of regime in Af- Af- Afghanistan, for example, and then not too long ago, obviously we've got we've got other things in the Middle East and Syria, and then almost everybody has forgotten about the war in the Balkans, and it and actually it was not that long ago. It was not that long ago at all, as you said, the 1990s. So it is heartening to hear that there is still plenty of work going on because. You know, it is not it is not an old conflict where it's now in previous generations where we have memorials and things for. This is where we have people living today, people of our generation still suffering the consequences of that conflict. So I'm just going to read um, the blurb out from the, the website and I'll put the web link in in the chat, folks. You really do need to explore this. And James is going to take us through it a bit more detail in a second. So um, it says here on the initiative of Dr. James Riding. From Newcastle University and hosting organized by the Post-Conflict Research Centre in Sarajevo, we are developing a subjective atlas of Bosnia and Herzegovina during three youth workshops in Sarajevo, Sobrekna, and I do pronounce here my pronunciation here, correct me, uh, Vitez, a group of over 75 local and international participants are mapping the divided region from their own lived experiences. So folks, you know, we've got geography, we've got art, we've got um, 
social science, so much going on here, so much intersectionality. Uh, part and parcel is to get participants to recognise and engage with their backgrounds, understand how this subject Activity shapes their perceptions of the world around them, a process reflected in the maps, flags, and other creative contributions produced throughout the workshops. And you've got some amazing pictures that people should really have a look for. I think they can learn so much about the project just by looking at those pictures. But yeah, I'm, I mean, James, where where to start with this thing? It sounds such an amazing project. Yeah. How, so how did it get started? How did you get involved? Um, it's something that I've been thinking about for almost the whole time that I've been doing research in Bosnia. And so since kind of 2012, 2013, um, I first contacted Annalise Devey, who's a brilliant artist. Uh, she's done work in Palestine. She's got a, uh, she's got another project called Disarming Design from Palestine. Right. And basically what she does is she does these long participatory projects with local communities uh, using art and design. Um, as a way to not only uh, critique or criticise war, because obviously war is inevitably terrible, yeah. Uh, but also to kind of work through uh, how people can use art in a way that might help with things like trauma, but might also help in a simple, joyful and creative way to look at things in a different way. Um, so, for example, when normally when I go to Bosnia and Herzegovina, um, I will do semi-structured interviews or I might do kind of a focus group. Um, but often uh, my concern for a long time was that this was too extractive um, right. and that I was writing an academic article about it, but I wasn't doing enough um, for the local communities that I was uh, doing research with. Um, so then I started experimenting with creative methods uh, to see how we could uh, do things in the landscape that were sensitive, uh, trauma-informed, uh, but were still um, relevant to people. Um, so what we originally, I started making films. Um, so we made a, another film that's called uh, I Remember When I Was a Window, um, which is a piece of graffiti on a wall in Mostar, um, which is a beautiful old town in Bosnia and Herzegovina with a beautiful old bridge uh, that was destroyed during the war in Bosnia. Um, so we started making this film with local actors um, in Sarajevo, um, and it's now a feature-length documentary that we showed at Northern Stage in Newcastle, um, and we're wow. still hoping it will be shown at some uh, film festivals this year and next year. Uh, but then this led me to actually thinking about how we could use art um, with local communities in a more participatory way. Um so I contacted the Post-Conflict Research Centre um, and Velma Sharic and um, Tatiana Milo Milovanovic. Uh, they are both brilliant um, and they work tirelessly um, as peace builders in Bosnia and Herzegovina. Mm. Um, and building peace is not something that's um, you kind of do half-heartedly. The, they kind of live the, every single day they have to live um, with uh, telling people their memories, their stories, um, in the hope that uh, somebody listens. Um, so Velma has been uh, founded Post-Conflict Research, Research Centre um, and they do kind of this multimedia peace building in Bosnia and Herzegovina and they primarily uh, do this with youth um, and young people from around the ages of kind of 14 
to maybe 35. Um, and they're people that are interested in peace building. They're interested in transitional justice. Um, they're interested in atrocity prevention. Um, so what they do is they kind of do these workshops. So what I thought was, well, maybe we could invite Annalise uh, to work with uh, the Post-Conflict Research Centre in Velma. And we'll put together these uh, workshops where we work with the youth that are already uh, working with the post-conflict research centre. So mm. they're interested, they're engaged, they want to learn more about the conflicts, but they also want to learn more about how they can do something, um, perhaps to say something about their, their local communities um, in Bosnia and Herzegovina, because not all of the young people are from Sarajevo or from Mostar or from Banja Luka. They're from, they're from uh, small towns and villages all over Bosnia and Herzegovina. Um, so, yeah, so what we did was we got them all together and uh, they started making maps. And these maps are not kind of typical maps. They're the kind of maps that, that anybody could do. So if you had a piece of paper and you wanted to draw something, that classes as a map. Mm. Like who's to say it isn't a map? Uh, yeah. So, I mean, I can talk more about maps, but <laughs> I'll stop there. No, it's... I mean, this this is just I've, as you were, yes, yeah, so as you were talking, I was kind of like picking up on on the images and the bits of the video, as, like and as as you were mentioning certain things, I was like, oh, I see, I see that visually, and this is why I'm encouraging everybody to go and have a look, you know, at at the website. So, in particular, there's a bit of the video in particular on on the main page um, where someone's chosen to do a map about about mines because there's still mines around from the conflict. Um, And, you know, and if you go and look at the video folks, it's around about one minute, nine seconds in. And you're thinking, crikey, we're now in 2023. And this person who, who is having their, their subjective take on what their landscape is like is still about where are the mines? Be careful where you step. You know, and so you've got that everyday lived experience where, you know, if you're going to go for a nice little walk around your region, around your area and the countryside or something like that, you don't want to make, you want to make sure you don't get your leg blown off. And that is just, and that is just, folks, that is just from one map on a freeze frame from this video. Um, what, from your, from your, your point, I mean, I'm, I'm sure there were quite a few, uh, James, but from, in your opinion, what, what do you reckon was, something a map or something somebody drew which was particularly striking was like this is this 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 is completely outside of my 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 experience and just just in in from it from that job for that process point of view you just went well that is that is incredible and that is to put me totally into that growth zone that i need to know about this so was there any particular experience you had like that any particular map that or maps that you saw which was like it just took took your breath away in this kind of in in context of what you were doing. Yeah, I mean, uh, lots of them. I think. I can imagine. Yeah. I think one one thing that I want to say is that we are working with uh, the Post Conflict Research Centre, who are trained in in trauma informed methods, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. And we follow a toolkit that they've produced that's used by uh, the European Union um, to. 
um, educate people in how to work in interreligious and multi-ethnic settings. Mm. Um, so one thing that we have to be careful of is that when people are doing this work, because it could be thought of as a form of art therapy. Right. Uh, so we have to be careful when we're doing this work to encourage people to still think of it as describing their local landscapes and also potentially just telling us some uh, stories that are everyday to them. Um, we're not trying to delve into uh, their past and their trauma and their personal trauma. It's about telling us um, things about Bosnia and Herzegovina that you might not see um, in the local or in your international media that you consume. Mm. Because most people that read about Bosnia and Herzegovina, they'll, within kind of, um, a bit, well, basically the students that I teach, once they've done a little bit of reading, they understand that it was a country that was uh, completely decimated by a conflict that killed over 100,000 people mm. um, and led to genocide in Srebrenica where 8,372 people were murdered in the space of six days. Um, so they understand this and we understand this when we work in these settings. Um, some of the most beautiful and poignant pieces are um, very simple. Um, so there's a map that is simply draws the inter-entity border. So when the peace agreement was signed in 1995, Bosnia and Herzegovina was separated into two entities. Uh, one was called Republika Srpska, which is mainly where Bosnian Serbs live. And then the other was called the Federation of Bosnia and Herzegovina, which is where mainly Bosniaks and Bosnian Croats live. Um, so you can see how the peace agreement defines in the landscape ethnic division, mm. when previously people were all Yugoslav and lived together. Uh, and Bosnia and Herzegovina and Sarajevo, indeed, has got a long multicultural and multi-ethnic history um, going back centuries and centuries from the Ottoman period. Um, so people live together for centuries together. Yeah. So, but yet today they are separated along ethnic lines. And whenever you read about Bosnia and Herzegovina, it's read through these ethnic narratives. Mm -hmm. So some of the most beautiful pieces are pieces that, that reject that history, uh, that say about, um, solidarity, um, and about, don't reduce people or flatten people to their ethnic identities. Right. Yeah. Um, and one of the most beautiful pieces I can think of is a piece that uses the inter-entity borderline, uh, but then writes a poem with this squiggle. Wow. And it's just a line that runs through the landscape, completely um, pointless in many ways. It doesn't follow any old um, historical, cultural, regional or regions. It's just mm. a new line that was created because it was the front lines uh, during the war in Bosnia. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, so one participant has written um, that this is not peace and drawn it into a line and into a shape um, that is the Dayton Agreement line and then, then done it over and over and over again over the shape of Bosnia and Herzegovina. That's incredible. Um, so that was one that I thought of that was um, really important. Another piece was um, when I was in Srebrenica doing some uh, doing the workshop there. Um, we had a participant that went to uh, her grandma's house and collected a load of socks that she'd been knitting all the way through her life. And obviously, when you speak to academics or when you speak to anybody that knows about the history of Bosnia and Herzegovina, if you say the word Srebrenica, 
It implies mm. um, genocide. It implies, um, uh, yeah, it's heavy with the weight of history. Yeah. Yet people still live in this town. Uh, they get on with their daily lives there. Um, so having sim- uh, having a simple image like a series of socks, so there must have been about 50 or 60 pairs, having those laid out um, on the floor with a straight image taken of each one um, and then laying them into a grid like a collection wow. suddenly shows you kind of powerfully uh, another story of Srebrenica a story of a a woman that's grown up there throughout her life and in the middle of her life uh, saw an act and witnessed and was part of, unfortunately, stuck stuck in uh, an area that became a safe zone um, during the war in Bosnia. And then the safe zone collapsed and the UN troops were unable to um, prevent uh, Ratko Mladic and the Bosnian Serb army from uh, committing an act of genocide, mm. uh, the worst act of genocide on European soil since the Holocaust. Right. Um, so yet within this same place, this woman has continued knitting socks for her granddaughter, for her daughter, um, while while experiencing all of that within her lifetime. So that was a really poignant uh, and important piece, I think, for uh, the subjective atlas. And I think it symbolises really importantly uh, what the atlas can do because it can tell more stories of a place uh, in, in simplest terms. That's what it does. It tells more. It tells a richer story of of Bosnia and Herzegovina, yeah. which through academic narratives is often read in quite simplistic um, and straightforward and uh, flattening ways. Mm. I that is so. I can't help but feel very moved by by proxy. Thank you so much for for describing that to us so clearly. And a pair, just a pair of socks, a pair of socks. We all, almost, almost everybody wears socks. It's in our drawers. There's the odds, you know. Everyone has a story about socks, don't they? Oh, the odd sock, the one that fell behind a certain piece of furniture, and you thought you'd lost, and you found it. What, what, what a way to demonstrate the humanity of the situation. And the other thing as well that strikes me is that sometimes the words, you know, subjective or subjectivity sometimes comes with a bit of stigma to it because, you know, and usually it gets thrown around when it comes to people divided by political lines or, or, or expressing bias or, or, you know, conflicting wealth, whatever it is. But I think what this project does exceptionally well is that you can have, and in fact, subjectivity is exceptionally important. And in in a lot of cases and a lot of circumstances, clearly like this, subjectivity is a lot far more important if you give power of it to the right people than objectivity. And this is what really strikes me about this, this, this project. And, and folks, you know, the vast majority you listening, I know, are my colleagues in the geography, geography teachers, geography educated students. This is the kind of thing I know that a lot of us feel is lacking in the geography curriculum. Is this powerful, empowering subjectivity that is just not part of our classroom because of, you know, where I taught, where I taught, it was a very, very white you know, 
background that rural Norfolk, just outside of Norwich, you know, what power this could have had, you know, if I, when we were talking about that part of the world. So James, thank you so, so much for sharing that. I, I think so subjectivity is something that, that, um, it's about acknowledging it as well alongside positionality and about saying mm. to people, especially in a place like Bosnia and Herzegovina, about saying to somebody that your voice counts, uh, what you say I am going to listen to. Um, we don't obviously allow things like genocide denial. We don't allow um, hate speech or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Uh, but we say to people that that you are telling me your story from your personal understanding of your town, of your landscape, um, of your family history. Um, so, yeah, so first of all, we ask people to think about their personal truth. Their personal truth is important. So often um, you think about the four truths, which was created during the South Africa uh, Peace and Reconciliation Commission. Um, what we're working with here is personal truth. Yeah. Um, and it's actually really important to allow people to tell you their personal truth. Um, but also in, in relation to a map, um, the word subjectivity is, is a useful uh, thing to think about as well, because a map is often thought of as this purely objective view from right. above. Yep. Um, and deconstructing that idea um, is also really important, I think, because a map is an image that has been created uh, by a cartographer. And that person is probably an old white man uh, sat in the UK. <laughs> That, yep. is, that has chosen for the UK to be in the centre of the map and has made it slightly larger than it should be and has shrunk the size of Africa and has uh, not only that, then uh, spoken to other people about where we should draw a line between another two yep. countries and then drawn it in a completely straight conference, line yeah. as if as if a ruler could have drawn it across the landscape. Uh, yes. um, so, so deconstructing some of these ideas of what a map is I also think is really important and telling people uh, to look again at their maps. Mm. Um, so when they consume maps like using Google, um, of course we all do it and we all use Google Maps and it's a very useful tool to to get around. I mean, I use it to navigate myself through the landscape of Bosnia when I'm driving right. from Sarajevo to Srebrenica. Yeah. But, um, yeah. but also uh, the power of mapping in a place like Bosnia and Herzegovina or in a place like we can see now the conflict that's taking place in Israel-Palestine. Yes. Uh, these issues are in part due to people drawing lines and making maps um, and dividing people. And um, the power of the map is that it can shape uh, real world and people's lives. Yep. Yeah. And so, folks, on that note, there's three... We don't have time, unfortunately, to go from any detail, but it's three things I really would like you to, to to check out. So one is is an attempt at a, a, a non-commercial, uh, non-privatized mapping called OpenStreetMap, where anybody can contribute. It's open source. Anybody can contribute that. So OpenStreetMap. Another one, which I'm sure, James, you've heard of, is Missing Maps, um, which is absolutely fantastic. And it's it's um, it tries to... Um, map areas which which have got very poor map coverage particularly with it in in times of conflict and and disaster um where they you know it helps with kind of supporting those areas because then you know where the road is you know where villages you know where people might be isolated and anyone can volunteer to help that you can even download an app where you can 
help to support um, the process. And the third one, which is um, you were talking about personal truths and stuff like that. The third one, which I do strongly recommend from from a LGBTQ point of view, is a map called and it is very subjective. It's called Queering the Map. Uh, if you just Google it, Google it, Ecosia it. See, automatically we're institution. Google it uh, or Ecosia it. Um, but if you if you go to Queering the Map and particularly go to places of conflict, like if you go to the Gaza area, for example, and you look at Queering the Map, you can see the 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 lived experiences. But it's basically people drop a pin of roughly where they are and they write a comment. And it's it's like a digital anonymous safe space for LGBTQ individuals. And even if you go to places like, you know, the area, some of those comments are really, really eye opening from from a queer perspective about what the conflict is doing and and the whole history of that area, how it's been impacting the queer community and stuff like that. So there's three examples that I really do strongly feel, you know, after they've checked out your 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 project, because it's just incredibly amazing. I should do that. Yeah, I Countermapping has got a long history, and it's often associated with like kind that. of indigenous struggle. Yes. Yeah. So I think I think if you uh, were to, if you're a teacher out there, like definitely checking out countermapping, mm. uh, decolonial mapping, um, and the ways in which we can kind of flip and subvert uh, the power of the map. Yeah, one hundred percent. Hey, educators! If you teach any geography, environmental or human or physical science-based topics, then check out Kit Marie Rackley's website at geogramblings.com. There you will find musings, blogs, resources, analyses, and more. Perhaps you want to brush up, learn, or dig deeper into a geographical issue? Or you're looking for a resource you can use in the classroom? Or maybe looking for someone with an award-winning, diverse expertise? and skill set to collaborate with you on a project. Kit Marie offers free 30-minute friendly consultations if you're looking to brainstorm ideas. Jog on to geogramlings.com to explore and find out more. Um, so what what we're going to do now, James, is is we'll, we'll move on. We'll stick with mapping because I really love what you said about about maps don't tell the whole story. And so what we're going to do now is that we're going to do um, we're going to do barking up the wrong tree, and hopefully we have yes the dog. There we are. Which James, I've got this new system, folks, where actually the guests can hear the, the sound as well. Um, where I give two stories. Oh, and it's on repeat. <laughs> um, two stories. One of them's false, and one of them is true. Now, the one of these stories is very familiar to a lot of you, and. I learned something brand new about this only the other day after admittedly decades of teaching its truth. Right? So, okay, I've probably even given the game away now, but anyway. Right, James, so I'm going to read you two stories, and all you've got to do is you've got to tell me which one you think is the true story and which one you reckon is the false story. Okay, so you ready for this one? So Yes, I'm, I'm glad you haven't. Uh, I, I mean, the worst one would have been if you told me a capital uh, and I had to yeah, <laughs> look right. out where it was a capital of. Or, so, I'm, uh, yeah, I'm hoping I might do all right. It's not. It's, it's, it's story-based. Right, so here's the first story, and this is uh, from um, the very reputable news, um, uh, news agency, NPR in the United States. Okay, so they say this. They say, in the 1930s, mapmakers Otto Lindbergh and Ernest Alpers created a fictional town called Aglo on a remote dirt road in upstate New York. 
as a paper town or map trap to catch out copycats. To their surprise, Rand McNally, a renowned map company, included Aglo on its own map two years later. So they took them to court, right? But Rand McNally used defense because they said that they found a building called Aglo General Store at specified coordinates. Now, here's the twist. Esso, a gas station company, had acquired the, the original map and thought, oh, there should be a place called Aglo here. We're going to put a, a store here and call it Aglo Store, right? So the town existed for a while until the store closed. Decades later, it's now gone, but it's resurfaced on Google Maps, perpetuating the, <laughs> there you go, perpetuating the 80-year-old fantasy. However, just as the story was set to be published, Google removed Aglo from its maps, marking the end of a town that never truly existed, but briefly became real before fading back into fantasy. What a fantastic story. Whether that's true or not, that one, that, but that does highlight what you were amazing. saying. I mean, that, that shows you exactly the power of the map. Yep. Yeah. The um, representation precedes the landscape. Right. Here's the second story, James. During the cholera outbreak of 1854 in Soho, London, a smart local physician called John Snow noticed the pattern of distributing of those dying of disease. He made a map, determined that it was polluted water being supplied from the pump on Broad Street that was causing the epidemic. He ripped off the handle of the pump and in the process, the outbreak abated. The lives were saved. Modern thematic map and disease mapping was born. The principles of GIS were established through his ingenious layered map and he invented epidemiology. Right. So what do you think, James? Uh, I prefer the first story. I just think that story is uh, such a beautiful. I don't even care if it's true or not. <laughs> I think I think what you said is important. It's like the the idea that you could just uh, name a town uh, on a piece of paper and then it wills it into being is brilliant. Uh, so I want that to be true. You want that to be true, right? So you're correct. It is true. Right. Now, folks, <laughs> I'm really surprised by that. I, I thought I thought the other one was true yeah. because I'm sure I've heard Jon Snow before, but I don't exactly. know. Exactly. Exactly. And James, you're not I'm I am betting you there are people listening to this right now going, are you serious? That Jon Snow story is famous. Of course, it's true. But folks, I found out earlier this week in actually researching for this little game, like false map stories and stuff like that. That the the that isn't exactly what happened in the Jon Snow. It's 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 become mythology and it's been used and perpetuated by people like me when I do about <laughs> courses about GIS and stuff like that. So, folks, I'll put for both of these. Um, I will stick it. Uh, obviously, as I always do, I'll put the links in the description. But yeah, uh, and I won't read out the whole thing. But um, it's an ArcGIS blog actually. So I just read out the first paragraph of that entry. And then the second paragraph after the bit I read says, despite it being a great story, unfortunately, it's not really how it played out. Both the use of the famous map and the story have become somewhat modified through the passage of time. So basically, uh, in a nutshell, folks, uh, the map was actually not created by Jon Snow. It was his idea, but he collaborated with a cartographer um, to kind of map what happened after the outbreak so the map was actually generated after the outbreak and it was actually the local council who removed the pump but handle but um the all the statistics say that the the cholera outbreak was on its way out anyway before that pump handle was removed but if i've just completely ruined your romantic picture of john snow 
it's still a good story. Read that ArcGIS blog, get the full facts, but it, it doesn't really change. If, if you want to still use it as in the birth of GIS or something like that, fine. Just get your facts right, and I'll make sure I do the same from now on. <laughs> for, the, for, a, for a student to uh, work out it's wrong, they'd have to do some reading, so... Oh, there you go. Yeah, well, yeah. So I hold my hands up there. I took it as red and I just perpetuated what everyone else was uh, telling me. Um, Unfortunately, James, we don't have time to talk about um, Spill the Beans, which was about your your passion for football, which you describe as not really highbrow academic passion. But because and anyway, you know, as a Spurs supporter, it's a kind of a tetchy tough to pick anyway. So but who do you support? You're not Preston. I I I was I didn't. I didn't say before. I'm a Blackburn Rovers fan, and oh, okay. I was at the. Uh, I was at the. It was called the Wormington Cup at that point. It was the yes. uh, old uh, League Cup, and I was in Cardiff, and I saw Andy Cole and Matt Janssen score against Spurs, and oh, don't you don't really bring it up. And it was a brilliant day. I had a broken arm that day. So. <laughs> oh, God, I remember that. Yeah, that's all. Was that when we went back to the old? That's when we returned to Holston as our as our um, sponsors, I think, because we were trying to relive the glory days of, the, of Lineker and Gaza. <laughs> yeah, I think I think Glenn Hoddle was your manager. I think, I think he said that Andy Cole yeah. took four chances to score a goal and then scored with his first opportunity. <laughs> Don't tempt fate. Well, Glenn Hoddle was always always on one to tempt fate, wasn't he? Right, we're finishing <laughs> off now, 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 James. So this has been a fascinating discussion. So, um, folks, we're going to now. Um, finish off with we are all geographers and if you're new to the podcast this is where we link all of our guests using a single word um so james i'm going to give you a word from the previous guest now spoiler alert if you've not this is why i said you need to listen to it first everybody but spoiler alert if you have not listened to the first episode of this season at the moment i deliberately tricked people into thinking i was talking to a real person and the whole episode was me having a conversation with an ai and just to prove how much AI has come along. Um, so I carried as when we got about nine minutes in before it was revealed, I was talking to an AI because quote unquote, she dropped the ball because, and would have felt she isn't deprogrammed to do the Turing test. So I'm surprised we got nine minutes in without this, without revealing it. Um, but we carried on the podcast as normal. And so I'm saying she, cause we used the female voice. Um, she had a go at We Are All Geographers. And um, the word that she wants you to talk to for 30 seconds, James, and this is completely randomly generated by the AI, is butterfly. So that's the word you've got. You've got to talk about butterfly for 30 seconds, and then you get the chance to come up with a single word for the next guest to talk about. So, James, when you're ready, I'll start the 30-second timer, and you just riff off about butterflies, however way, shape, or form you'd like. So tell me when you're ready. Go uh, the first uh, thing that came to my head was butterfly effect. Um, and that's similar to, I guess, the idea that you're doing. You're kind of rolling through every guest that comes on and we all give you a, a word. But actually, I was imagining the Rorschach capture tests that I've been looking at a lot to do with DNA analysis and the kind of beautiful shapes that they make. Yeah. Um, so I don't know whether that's a kind of link for your next guest, <laughs> DNA Oh, is this the first time ever, folks, that someone has been clever enough to to give the next guest's word within their 30 seconds? I, th- James, you are officially holding that accolade. You were the first guest in four seasons to go this, this, and this. you did a Bob Monkhouse. 
for those of the older yeah. generation. Yeah. You just did a Bob Monkhouse where you've strung two words together. Just instantly like, right. So not only has James done a great job with Butterfly in his 30 seconds, he's given the next one of DNA for the next guest. Fantastic. Oh, brilliant. Nicely done. That was very smooth. Right. Last two things for you then, James. Have you got any, I, I know there's one particular shout out you probably want to give and, you know, shout out loud enough. She can probably hear you. Um, but you got uh, any shout outs you'd like to give and uh, where can folks um, find you particularly on social media if they want to connect based on what they've learned about you? Yeah, I'd like to say thank you to Catherine Walker, who's also a new act fellow in the department. And she, uh, kindly said uh your podcast that you did the other week was okay <laughs> oh. you should do another one uh, so hence i'm here um and if if you're interested in anything uh related to bosnia and herzegovina go on the post-conflict research center website uh they do a lot of outreach work in bosnia and herzegovina and a lot of it is um useful for teachers as well because it's mm. a lot of multimedia work that they do uh with local communities and also you'll just learn more about uh, the history of the war in Bosnia and how they work to prevent uh, atrocities taking place in the future as well. Um, if you want to read about me, <laughs> uh, then you can you can follow me on Twitter. Um, it's just underscore James underscore writing. Um, or you can look at my staff page at Newcastle University. Or, of course, you can go on the Subjective Atlas yes. uh, website um, it's called Subjective Editions. Is the um, publishing uh, company? It's non non uh, profit organisation based in Brussels uh, that produce these beautiful subjective atlases. Um, there's this Bosnia and Herzegovina will be the fifteenth subjective atlas. Wow! Um, so there's lots that um, you can find from the past. Some of them are cities like Amsterdam. Uh, some of them are countries like Mexico. Uh, there's one of Palestine. There's one of Serbia. Um, there's one of Pakistan. Uh, so there's lots of different places that you can go and find out more about. And Annalise uh, Debay yeah. is the uh, designer, graphic designer that's been working on this since around 2003. This is amazing. This is, folks, go and look this up. If if you do, if you're doing any work, case study teachers, if you're if you do a case study, you know, well, you do case studies, of course, but have a look at the list. Go If you go to subjectiveeditions.org slash atlases and you've got a list on the left-hand side, you're going to be doing some stuff about these countries. Go and have a look. And there are some of these, are, um, you can get them in PDF format, which is brilliant. So if your budgets are tight, you can get them in PDF uh, format for four uh, euros 50. And so, of course, therefore, you've got it on digital. You can display it on your screen. You can, yeah, um, go check it out, folks. This is this is something I'm going to be taking a look at. Yeah, and um, um, if if any of you uh, want to make your own subjective atlas, contact Annalise DeBay. Um, wow. Contact details are on the website. Um, we were thinking of potential future places. Uh, it would be really good to think about doing one of Ukraine. Yes, uh, but at a distance and working with mm. people that are displaced uh, due to the conflict in Ukraine. Uh, but also you could think about doing one of kind of a borough of London. Um, yeah. So we're thinking of, could you do one of like Hammersmith or something or Ealing? Yeah, or... Tower Hamlets or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. amazing. James, this has been 
an amazing chat. It's been great to get to know you and the work that you're doing. It's a lot, a lot of, you know, if it comes to kind of things like social justice, diversity, you know, lived experience, maps and all rolled into one, that's, you're definitely a person that speaks off my own heart. So, and I know a lot of people listening has taken a, a lot from this discussion. So thank you so, so much for giving up your time. And, and I hope we can uh, stay in contact. And perhaps next time I bump into Catherine, next time I'm up north, we, I can, we can actually go for a proper coffee in that, co- in that cafe downstairs. <laughs> yeah, and thank you so much for having me on. It's been uh, really nice, actually. Uh, often when you speak about your academic research, you do it in a kind of very structured way at an academic conference. So it's really nice to kind of uh, talk more openly about what we do. Sure. There's nothing much structured about me, to be honest. So (laughs) thank you so much, James. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. We hope you had fun. If you haven't already done so, please subscribe to the podcast and give us a rave review. Make sure you share and rate each episode as every time you do this. It helps more people find us and continues the conversation. If you fancy being a guest or have any feedback, follow us on Twitter at coffeegeogpod and send us a DM. Or you can email us at coffeegeogpod at geogramblings.com. Until next time, keep jogging. <laughs>